following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, friends. We can go ahead and begin. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open it to Luke chapter 1. During this Advent season, we are studying from the Gospel of Luke the songs of Advent from the saints here recorded. And the number of these songs are actually unique to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Of course, we see uh, much of the same Advent story and Christmas story recorded throughout all the Gospels. But here in Luke, we have a unique perspective as he records the praise and the hymns and the songs of some of the characters that are caught up in the story. Uh, Last week we studied the song of Zechariah as he was filled with joy at the birth of his son and what he understood that his son would do and be in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. We work back just a little bit from that song to the song of Mary And traditionally, this song is called the Magnificant, and that's just the Latin phrase for the opening word or line of her song, which says, My soul magnifies the Lord. So we'll study this song this morning, but before we do, please join with me in prayer, and then we'll study together. Father, we do pray for those who are not here, that they'd be encouraged by your Spirit, that those who are able to listen along with us uh, presently or in the future would uh, be edified and encouraged by your word and know that it works wonderfully it does not return void and it accomplishes the purposes it was sent to do Um, but we do pray that as those who are taking care of loved ones or sick themselves would indeed uh, feel comforted by the god of comfort and uh, would find in their own souls a revival uh, and a restoration even if their bodies are ill. We pray for others who are traveling, who can't be with us. In all of this, God, we ask that you would uh, unite your body to yourself and cause us to grow in love and reverence for you and humility toward one another. And we ask, God, that even this morning, as few in number as we may be, we would would leave with with a sense of joy and gladness in our hearts having sat under your word, and to that extent, God, may what I speak now be sufficient for your purposes and faithful to uh, your word, which is holy and good. And I ask all of this, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I I must say, I'm not a fan of musicals, typically. Most of the movies that my family enjoys, however, are musical. Brittany has a love of Broadway singing, and so she often goes around the house singing tunes from such greats as Phantom of the Opera uh, or some famous Christmas carols from her favorite movie. And my kids, too, have joined in on this, and they sing songs from their favorite movie all the time. And just this past week, we watched a Disney movie, which of course, breaks into spontaneous song at any given moment. And that's kind of the trope in Disney songs, isn't it? That one moment you're watching a scene unfold like any other, and then the next, it's a whole 
number choreographed, singing and dancing, and everyone goes about their business or joins in the song as this is completely normal. And the idea I think it's meant to capture, of course, much to my own chagrin, is that people feel things, and they feel things at times rather strongly, and song, by God's grace, is given to us in many ways to express and to process and to demonstrate those emotions. They can be helpful. They can also give light to wrong emotions. But however we address these emotions, song seems to be one of the most powerful ways that humans do this. And not just musically, but of course, lyrically and poetically. Song, poetry, hymns, this expression of our emotions have been with us since the very beginning. However, in our series this, this Advent season, we are looking much more at just an expression of emotion. What we'll read and what we saw last week in Zechariah's song of praise and here in Mary's song of praise is more than a spontaneous impulse to dance. It's more than a desire simply to express emotion. Songs in the Bible also instruct us. They form a theology, a understanding of God that flows from our hearts. So on a truer note, these songs are songs of doxology, not mere expressions of emotion, although they are, at its core, emotional. And this doxology, this praise, flows from the theology of the context in which we read as wonders of God and the beauty of the gospel are understood, certain characters in our story are moved to proclaim this in hymn and in song and in spiritual song. The Psalms themselves are so moved that the author, whether David, Solomon, or others, would write them down and pen them to be sung by others who would feel at any given time the weight and the energy of the truth of those words. Often they do give expression to our feelings of maybe despondency, isolation, desperation, but even triumph and joy and comfort. The Apostle Paul himself will break into spontaneous song or doxology as he's writing a letter to a church. He would at one moment be speaking of the glorious gospel of God's grace that was predestined for all time and then the next moment be singing all praise be to God for him and through him and to him belong all things forever and ever amen these doxologies are sprinkled all throughout the Bible as a sort of overflow of what we understand about God leads us to praise God doxology follows theology praise flows from the pursuit of God both in the sense as God pursues us and in our own pursuit of God. Our being known by God and our knowing God both result in the doxological praise of his people to God. That's simply what we'll read today. So the song itself is contained in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke in verse 46 through 56, but for context we're going to read a little wider. So please Look in verse 26 of chapter 1, the beginning of Mary's story here in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll read on through the end of verse 56. 
It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, that's the same angel spoken to Zechariah, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So in those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud In the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained there with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Mary, of course, perhaps more well-known than Elizabeth, is going about her business. She's happily betrothed to Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth. And Nazareth, of course, was a nondescript town, often uh, the butt of joke and ridicule by others. 
in Jerusalem. And while she was out minding her business, an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, comes to her and announces this great news to her that she will bear, conceive and bear a son, Jesus. And this will be no ordinary son. This will be conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he will be the Son of God. And of course, she, perplexed at this, asks how this is even possible. Elizabeth was unable to conceive a son because she was barren. But Mary would be unable to conceive a son because she was unmarried, both in the eyes of society an impossibility. And so she wonders, am I to be married more quickly to Joseph? Or is there another man to whom I am to be married that will bear me a child? And the angel says, no, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will conceive and bear a son, Jesus, who will be the Son of God. Mary treasures this in her heart. She believes what the word of the Lord has said. And we see in verse 25 that she says willingly, readily, then what the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, may it be so. She says, whatever your will may be, God, may it be. And so she immediately goes to Elizabeth. For the angel told her as well that such a miraculous event has taken place in Elizabeth's life. And she goes to celebrate what the Lord seems to be doing, the dawning of a new era. And she celebrates with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting. The baby in her womb leaps for joy. She's filled with the Spirit. And she blesses Mary. Much what we see in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, Elizabeth also beatifies Mary. Blessed is the favored one of the Lord. Blessed for the one who has come bears the Lord. This is something beautiful. And Mary, hearing the blessing, remembering the words of the Lord, breaks into song herself. And the song we have in verses 47 through 55 is this beautiful exploration of what God is doing in the midst of Mary's life, in the midst of his people, in the unfolding of a new era in the world. Mary's song is both a personal expression of joy and elation for the triumphantly good news of God's blessing to her and to all people. She is blessed and she is favored by God. And so there is a personal expression of this joy for what God seems to be doing, this good news of God's blessing, not only to her, but for all people. But it is also a personal reflection on the goodness and the grace of God, a poetic sketch of his character and his attributes. So in the song here, she focuses not only what God has done and is doing for her, but extols God for who he is speaks of his character and his attributes as merciful and faithful. Mary's song celebrates the dawning of the fulfillment of God's promises and the dramatic reversal of sin and sorrow that his kingdom will bring. It is the very beginning of all that God had said he would do. Now is breaking forth into the world not merely through word, but now in person.
Mary, by God's grace, understands that what God is doing in conceiving a son by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb is exactly what he has promised throughout all of Scripture. And so her song is a personal expression of joy that she plays an important part in the story and a personal reflection on the goodness and grace of God, a sketch of his character and his attributes. It's a celebration of the dawning of the fulfillment of God's promises to celebrate how he is reversing sin and sorrow and the establishment of the kingdom of God which is coming and breaking forth through her son. It celebrates God's plans and purposes of the redemption and the renewal of God. She understands that God is now beginning to bring forth the promises which he had made in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and giving all of that into this new day where her people will be redeemed, where the world will be renewed. To borrow a phrase from the Lord of the Rings, it is a day in which everything sad would come untrue. This is a dramatic reversal of those who desire and need God's help are strengthened, redeemed, and the world is renewed. But not just this redemption and renewal, but with this kingdom and with the advent of the Son of God comes justice and the judgment in which God's people are declared righteous. They are vindicated by God's Son and His enemies are dealt with and vanquished. This is a new world dawning, a world of redemption and renewal and of justice and judgment. But the theological considerations of this kingdom, as important as they are, simply form the background to the celebration. Mary, more than waxing theologically, is singing triumphantly. This is a hymn of praise formed by much of the Old Testament promises that she would have known and understood and have sung together with her family from a very young age. The theological considerations form the background to the celebration in the song. It is a hymn of praise, an overflow of joy and thanksgiving for what God has done and is doing and will continue to do. That's the theme this morning as we consider the song of Mary. It is a theme of joy, thanksgiving. And so as we consider this, we'll do so under four heads. First, we'll consider the principle of Mary's praise, that principle which forms the basis of her praise. We'll consider then the cause of Mary's praise, why she sings, Third, we'll consider the root of Mary's praise, which forms the basis and the theological reflections of her song. And then lastly, the hope of Mary's praise. First, consider the principle of Mary's praise. There is a guiding principle for why we ought to understand Mary's song. And it might be clear already to you that the principle behind the praise and the song of Mary is, of course, the joy of God. It is a song of thanksgiving. It is a song of praise. Mary is experiencing 
very real joy. It's a joy, of course, mixed with wonder and amazement. It's a joy that is mixed with, at times, confusion, not knowing the full plan and purposes of God. But it is a joy which causes her to rejoice, to express, and to reflect. The principle is this. A rejoicing spirit exalts the Lord, and an exultant soul is satisfied in God. We could see that here in just the first line of her song in verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her soul magnifies the Lord, exalts the Lord, lifts up the Lord on high, and my spirit rejoices, is satisfied in, and takes delight in God, who is my Savior. The principle of joy is that a rejoicing spirit exalts the Lord, and an exultant soul is satisfied in God. Mary praises God because she experiences joy. And she experiences joy because she has found contentment and satisfaction in God. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in Him, God my Savior. Two things we learn about this is that the true object of our praise, as it is for Mary, is God alone. My soul magnifies the Lord. All of the expressions and the feelings of great joy and exuberance that we ought to feel find the true expression in praise to God. He alone is the true object of all of our praise for the joy we experience. Of course, we have secondary sources for what makes us happy. We can delight in the sweet taste of candy or in the savory taste of a steak or in the joy of a friendship, or in the gift we receive that Christmas. But the true object of all of our praise for the joy that we experience is God alone. This, of course, is the primary calling card of the Reformation. Glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria, the Reformers would say. That all of the praise is for God alone. We can be thankful for friends and family, for the provision of good and tasty things, but the true object of our praise is not man, and it is certainly not creation, but it is God, the Creator. But not only is the true object of our praise to be God alone, that our soul may magnify the Lord, but the true source of our praise which magnifies God is joy in him. Thus she says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Not simply my spirit rejoices in what he has done for me. My spirit rejoices in what he gives to me. My spirit rejoices in how great my life will be. My spirit rejoices in how I'll be known as blessed forever. All of those things are good and right and beautiful and true. But what she rejoices in more than anything is in God her Savior. And so her soul magnifies the Lord. These two lines are to be taken together and should never be separated. 
Her soul magnifies the Lord because her spirit rejoices in God. And because her spirit rejoices in God, her soul magnifies the Lord. Thus, Psalm 16 tells us that it is at God's right hand that we find pleasures forevermore. It is He who gives joy and thanksgiving, surpassing all others. In other words, we praise what we prize. Because Mary's delight and contentment is in God, because she rejoices in Him above all, she is also able to praise God wholeheartedly, without reservation. She accepts at His word what He has said through the angel Gabriel, and she rejoices in what God is clearly doing in her midst. She hears the word and the prayer and the praise of Mary. She considers what it means for a baby to leap in the womb of a mother filled with the Holy Spirit. And she clearly understands that God is beginning to do something wonderful in the world. And we rejoices. We praise what we prize. If we prize God, our souls are contented and delighted in Him alone. We will praise Him. We can put it conversely, any failure or neglect of praise is directly correlated to a failure or a neglect of rightly and properly prizing God. We may in any given moment esteem Him wrongly or estimate His worthiness or value to our lives wrongly. And so our praise is hindered. But when we have the right perspective and a proper valuation of God, His greatness, His goodness, who He is and what He's doing in our midst for the person and the work of Jesus, His Son, when we prize that, we will praise it. And so the true act of our praise is our rejoicing. One flows from the other and one feeds to the other. The true act of our praise, the truest and the most complete manifestation of our praising is in our rejoicing. It is in our taking delight in God. The American theologian and Puritan Jonathan Edwards would say that God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. We may glorify God and extol Him when we see His glory around us, but God is also glorified in our rejoicing in His glory and in God Himself. Or, perhaps you've heard it more famously put by John Piper, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This means that if we desire, rightly as we should, to glorify God in our lives, He will be most glorified when we are most satisfied. And we are most satisfied in Him when we pursue Him and His glory. When we understand that He, above all, is the true object of our praise that He is the true source of our joy. And therefore, rejoicing, singing, praising, it isn't simply a duty, but a delight. It is a delight which we are commanded to do, but is one that we willingly and joyfully enter into because we praise what we prize. 
One way we can phrase it is this. A joyful heart produces a joyful tongue. Mary sings here because her heart is overflowed with joy. She is amazed at God's wonderful gift of blessing and favor, not simply on her, but what he's about to pour out into the whole world. She has a joyful heart, which produces a joyful tongue. All throughout the Old Testament, songs and spiritual songs are being sung because of what God is doing, and the joyfulness of that situation leads the psalmist or the prophet to praise God. Songs, of course, have the ability to guide our hearts to a place of worship, to inform our consciences and our minds to have a proper sentiment or view of God. But the best songs, the best praises, are sung and offered from an overflowing well of gratitude and grace. There is, of course, a difference between listening to a song that you need to hear and singing a song you love to hear. Both are good. And sometimes you come to church and the song we sing is exactly what the Lord needed to give to you. It lifted your spirit. It encouraged you. It spoke a truth that you were doubting. But how much more gracious is God when we sing together as a church songs which not simply we need to hear, but which we can affirm, which we have walked in. It's a beautiful celebration of God's love and kindness to us. And so this truth, this principle, that a rejoicing spirit exalts in the Lord, an exultant soul is satisfied in God, reveals for us the condition of our own hearts before God as we gather to sing. It causes us to ask the question, are the songs we sing, is the lifting up of our voice more an attempt to convince us that the words are true or is it a response and an affirmation that they are? Now, because we're human and fickle at any given moment or any given Sunday, we may need both the reminder and the proclamation. But if we are constantly in need of the reminder and never singing from a place of confidence, and I fear then that we are missing the principle of Mary's praise, that we are not fully delighting in God from which a joyful heart would produce a joyful tongue. So the principle is there that Mary delights in the Lord and so she exalts. And because she exalts in the Lord, her rejoicing in God is deepened. But we continue to examine then the cause of Mary's praise. Why does she exalt God? Why does she delight in God? Well, the principle there leads us to the joy of God, but the cause of Mary's praise is understood as the affection of God. Simply put, she is joyful over God's affection poured out on her. She sees the love of God manifest not only in the provision of a Savior, but in His kindness and grace for all who fear him. There are three causes of Mary's praise that she sings about in her song here. First, she says in verse 48 that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's speaking, of course, of himself. Remember, she called himself a servant, more literally, a woman slave, one who really puts herself in servitude to God. 
She indentures herself and says, I am yours. This is the lowly and humble estate of her servant. And she says, for God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Another translation says, for he has regarded the humble estate of his servant. So she praises God because the Lord's regard. In other words, he sees her. She is exposed. And instead of feeling shameful and unworthy before God because she is simply a servant, the bottom of the bottom of the rung on the ladder to worship and serve God, she sees and knows that God sees and knows her. That in some way, some form or fashion, God has stooped and bowed himself so low that he sees and knows Mary, the servant of the Lord. A woman without much societal value other than producing children. One whose job is destined to simply be a mother, to take care of household chores. But God comes to Mary and she says that he has seen me. This seeing is more than a general observation. The seeing comes with it an acknowledgement of worthiness, an acknowledgement of his care and affection for her. It is a knowledge and it is a familiarity. He takes up her cause and he draws near to her. God on high stoops and bows to the lowest of the low. And so she praises him for his regard. He sees, but he also is praised by Mary for the blessing he bestows upon her. He says, for behold, in verse 48, for now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is what Elizabeth also has said as he extols Mary when she comes. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary is led to give praise to God. She breaks out into song, not only because she sees that the Lord sees her, but because not only does he, does he see her, but he bestows upon her blessing. Blessing in the Bible is not simply riches or material possession. It is comfort. It is happiness. It is peace. What the Lord bestows upon Mary is honor. It is the gift of God's nearness. And so the Lord, through Gabriel, says, the Lord is with you. So Mary breaks out in song because of the Lord's regard and because of the Lord's blessing. But also we see in verse 49, because of the Lord's favor. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She says that not only does he see me, and not only has he blessed me, but he who is mighty has done great things for me. She is highly favored by God. That's the word the angel uses, 
favored one. This, of course, dovetails nicely with the blessing and the honor of God. But favor here means that she has been chosen and has been given something unique. She has been plucked out from others and lifted or exalted. So here, not only does God see and does God bestow blessing, but he also now exalts Mary. She will now be what is often referred as the Theotokos, the mother of God. What a unique blessing in in favor upon God. And because of all this, as she stores it up in her heart, ponders it, and she sees what God is doing in her midst, she breaks into song. It deepens the, the well of joy and grace from which she can draw in truth and in trust and in faith. And it gives the foundation, the cause of her praising because God has had affection on her and has drawn near to her. He sees her, regards her, blesses her, and exalts her. But consider now the root of Mary's praise. The root of Mary's praise are the perfections of God, the divine attributes that she considers now. This God who has stooped so low as to befriend her, who sees and regards her, blesses her, and favors her, is a particular kind of God which is worthy of praise. And so she begins to extol God in his perfections in verses 50 through the end of the song. There are four attributes or perfections of God that she draws out. The first, of course, is his power. It says in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. His power is on full display through the blessing and the favor of Mary. And so she sings about it. How often do we sing songs at church or in our week as we worship God that speak directly to the power of God? That give praise for God in his omnipotence of the ability of God to do anything and everything that he pleases, the sovereignty of God to bring both the good and the bad according to his word. And here he says that God's omnipotence, God's power is bent in the care and the provision of those whom he loves. The omnipotence of God is bent toward the care and the provision of those whom he loves. He employs his power for our good. Of course, the ultimate purpose of his activity is his glory, but his glory is what satisfies and rejoices the saints. And so his power on display is for the benefit and the good of his people. And thus Paul will say in Romans 8.28, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. He works it by his power, his sovereign control, his wisdom and omniscience and his omnipotence, all bent and employed in the care and service of his people. Isn't that a worthwhile thing to think about? Certainly to sing about? That the almighty God, unrivaled and unmatched in strength and in power, would employ such strength for your benefit? 
So this is worthy of praise. One of the other perfections she sings about is his holiness in the second part of verse 49. Holy is his name. God's holiness is the very reason Mary will give birth. He says, Gabriel says to Mary, that the one in her womb will be called the Holy One of God, the Most High. He will be called Holy, the Son of God. And here she extols God and says, Holy is His name. The holiness of God, the perfection, the moral perfection of God, the complete and other distinction of God's character is the very reason Mary is chosen and favored to give birth. For the holiness of God means that he will answer the sin and sorrow and darkness of the world, and his answer is Jesus. His holiness means that he will come and make right what has been put wrong. That the restoration and the renewal necessary for Israel's glory and salvation is not simply by glossing over the sins and hitting the reset button, but through the holy work of the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. So she extols God in his holiness, who would stoop not only to bless, but also make right what has been put wrong. Another perfection she praises God for in her song here is his mercy. In verse 50, she says that his mercy... It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. She extols God because he has poured out mercy, not simply on herself as the one who carries the Son of God in her womb, but on all those who would come to fear him. Just as his holiness would be the reason that Mary was called and chosen to give birth, so too is his mercy the reason that Mary will give birth. It is the combination of God's holiness and God's mercy that form the purpose for Jesus' advent. His holiness demands that he must answer sin in the fullness of time. But his mercy is the reason that he will do so through the substitutionary death of Jesus and not demanding such answer for sin from you or I. Do you think that this is a reason to give praise to God? Do you think that the more you consider God's holiness and God's mercy in the advent of Christ, you might in some way be moved to thank God, to say, holy is the Lord, whose mercy is for those who fear him. He has regard for the lowly estate of his servant. He has blessed us in the beloved. And Ephesians tells us that in him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we have been highly favored and exalted by God because we receive the blessing of Christ's humility. Perhaps the crowning perfection of God of the song here is God's faithfulness. In verses 54 and 55, she says that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The promise of the Davidic king who would rule forever, Gabriel says, is the one in the womb of Mary. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. He is faithful to his word. He has remembered his servant, not only Mary, but his people Israel. He has remembered that he is merciful. Not as if he forgot, 
but now decides to act according to his mercy in the fullness of time. His covenant, his faithfulness, is on full display in the birth of Jesus. And so his power, his holiness, his mercy, and his faithfulness form the root of Mary's praise. She extols God for his perfections, his divine attributes, worthy of praise. Friends, do we consider God in his attributes? Have you taken time to consider and study what it means that God is holy or merciful, what it means that he's omnipotent or omniscient, what it means that he is faithful and just, what it means that he is always forgiving for those who seek him. This is but a brief sketch of the attributes of God, and yet there are many more tomes and tomes that we could read and barely scratch the surface of fully understanding the perfections of God. And yet so often we have a very anemic view of what it means that God is any one of these things. As we consider Advent this year, may the source of our joy in the coming of Jesus be rooted deeply in the kind of character that God has displayed in Christ. But lastly, we consider the hope of Mary's praise. The hope of Mary's praise, of course, is not in anything that she can do or accomplish. It's not in John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth, It's not in what any other man would do, but it is, of course, the one whom she carries in a womb. It is the Son of God. If the principle of her praise is the joy of God, and the cause of her praise is the affection of God, and the root of her praise is the perfections of God, then the hope of her praise is the Son of God. For all of this, the joy and the affections and God's attributes in his perfections are all come to full display in Christ, her son. One commentator put it this way, in the fact that he is engaged, God is engaged in fulfilling his promises concerning the Messiah, King and Redeemer, she sees all these divine perfections revealed. For it is only through the incarnation of Jesus that we learn with full certainty to know God in his omnipotence, his power, to know God in his holiness, in his mercy, as in his faithfulness. God does not simply display himself as such to do so, but has put Jesus in the womb of Mary so that as we consider these perfections, we see them in the Son of God. He alone accomplishes what God has set out to do. He alone extols God by absorbing the wrath of God's holiness and righteousness against sin. But he alone becomes the answer of God's mercy to a dying world. And he is faithful to God, is faithful, God is faithful to his covenant. All of these are revealed perfectly and completely in Jesus. And so the author of Hebrew tells us that at any time before Christ, we knew and understood God through the prophets, through the words the prophets wrote and said. But now we know and understand God through Christ, the perfect and complete revelation of God the Father. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiance of his glory. It is by his word the universe is upheld the word of his power, and the world was created for him. 
He was the one who was righteous unto death. He was the one who had mercy on his people that he would become a sacrifice for them. He was the one who was faithful and obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. Mary's song here reveals to us much more than just what Christmas is here to celebrate. It reveals for us all the purposes and plans of God are made true and are fulfilled in Christ. Mary sings because she recognizes and acknowledges this, and she understands that the birth of her son is the very beginning, the advent, the appearing, the unfolding, and the breaking in of God to human history to begin to make all things right again. The lowly will be exalted, and the haughty will be humbled. This is what the new world would be about. So what does Mary's song put into perspective for us today? What well, helps us understand the nature of suffering? <coughs> that God is perfect in his timing and that he will do all according to his word. His purposes will never fail. That we can believe and trust in God despite the circumstances we find ourselves in. We have a lowly estate as sinners and we may be the very refuse of the world as the apostles were in their time. We may be slandered, mocked, persecuted, but God has a purpose and a plan for his people. He will vindicate the righteous. He will exalt the humble. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones and he will exalt those of humble estate. He will fill the hungry with good things, but the rich he will send away empty. In our suffering, we can trust God but we can also consider Mary's song as we wait for the second advent of Christ. You and I have the benefit of celebrating what has come, Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Son of God. But we also wait longingly and expectantly, just as the first generation of Christians experienced in their life, the second advent of Christ, who has promised that he will come again. What is the word from our New Testament reading this morning? That though it feels like God is slow in coming, he is not. For a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. We wait patiently. And in our waiting, we experience the peace of God. We have trust in God. We sing with joy the song of Mary and of Elizabeth, of Zechariah, of the shepherds and the angels, of Simeon and of Anna. And we sing with doxology in our hearts because of the theology in our mind God will come again. And we may not be alive the day that it happens, but we can trust that it will. We may see that day. But if the Lord tarries, we wait and persevere with endurance, joyfully waiting, because our delight is in God and our soul magnifies Him in whom we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which only we began to scratch the surface of. I pray, God, that the, the joy of our hearts was stirred in some small way this morning and that it would continue to, to stir and lead us to sing genuine songs of hope and joy, that Christ is the theme of our song and that every act of joy and blessing we receive in this life would lead us 
to worship you, the true object of our praise. We thank you, God, for the wondrous mystery of Christ, this incarnation, this robing of flesh, the incarnate word, the dawning of the King of heaven, divinity taking on humanity, the light coming into our darkness, him who condescended to take your flesh and ransom us. We behold that beautiful truth and we sing with Mary both firmly on the ground and the rock of your truth and your character but with songs of hopefulness and joy for what you have done, are doing and will continue to do for us in Christ. May we be encouraged by that truth in your spirit this morning in Jesus' name. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. seated.